Welcome to Lean Back. I'm Laura. And I'm Lisa. And today we're talking about confidence. I wanted to talk about confidence for a few different reasons. And it's something we've talked about recording in the past, but I've always been afraid to do it because confidence is something I have struggled with a lot and still struggle with and something I think about a lot. Um, And, you know, I'm getting to a place where I finally have a source of confidence that is a little less external. I, you know, I fear doing it in the past because I've been like, I'm just going to be self-deprecating and like flounder in my own failure (laughs) if we talk about this. And I think we should address those aspects, you know, like why is confidence such a challenge in our culture, especially for women and what types of sources of confidence matter you know, a good place to start is maybe to talk about what are our sources of confidence? Because like I said, feeling confident more than insecure is a new feeling to me. (laughs) Yeah. I kind of want to get into like, what are your sources of confidence? I think mastery is a source of confidence for me. And I think since I was a successful high school and college debater, I had access to just like thousands and thousands and thousands of hours of reading hard things and writing hard things and speaking hard things and competing and winning really a lot and losing really a lot. And so I feel like mastery for me is a source of confidence. Like I've put in hundreds of thousands of hours into the things I spend most of my days doing as an adult person. And so It's very rare that I'm around a lot of people um, who have put in that kind of time to to the craft. So that's one source, I think. Ethics, I think, is another, right? So because I've been doing politics and, and debate for so long, as a very young person, I grappled with really big ethical questions and like came to conclusions about my own personal ethics as a young person. So I did was not doing a lot of that formative work in my like twenties or thirties. Cause I had put so much time in on the front end, reading about ethics, thinking about ethics, doing politics, like thinking about praxis. So I think ethics for me is a source of confidence. I also think risk is I've taken some really big risks, like physical risks, emotional risks, professional risks. And that has helped me to contour my understanding of what I'm capable of. I joke when I, when I choose people that I want to partner with or do work with over a long period of time, like, would I trust you to break me out of a prison? <laughs> you know, <laughs> is, and, and I've joked about it since I was young, not because I expect to find myself in prison, but like, would you have the skills to be able to think through a complex ethical conundrum like that, right? And would you find yourself, you know, in solidarity, especially because I do prison work, right? That's like, seems like an important question. So I think um, risk and then the corollary is trust. I trust myself and I, I trust the people that I have built with, you know? And so I feel like I have a really solid foundation of support for the decisions that I make. So I I think those four things, if I had, you know, off the top of my head are the sources of my confidence, but I don't think that people have that kind of relationship to the self that is so intentional. Like, I think that's one thing that makes me a weirdo 
is that I'm hyper intentional about the entire architecture of my decision making and how I make choices about who I spend time with and what I think about and where I go and what kind of politics I have is that it's, I'm really like rigorously intentional about those things. And I think a lot of other people are just kind of reacting to stimuli. You know, somebody did, did something that made me sad, or I didn't like this, or I, I didn't get this job or, you know, so-and-so rejected me dating, or that is not the data set that I'm working from, you know? You don't just let stuff happen to you. No. That is important. And that's something for a long time I felt like I was doing was just letting stuff happen to me and that like guiding the course of my decisions. And it is really impactful when you're intentional and you're, you know what you want and like you're taking steps to go after it or get closer to it. And that like can be a huge source of self-esteem. Well, but I like what you're saying about knowing what you want. I think people I've talked about on the podcast before are really shitty about understanding what they want. They have no vocabulary of desire. They are sort of erratic about it. And I think since I've been young, I have had really good boundaries about people who are chaotic and don't know themselves well enough to make credible decisions for themselves or others, right? Like you don't know who you are. We will not be hanging out. Like you have no, you know, solid sense of self. We are not going to be able to work together, whatever that is. Like, since I was young, I was just like, you're a chaos agent of chaos. Like we cannot spend time together because this is not the way that I'm setting up my time. And not because those people are bad people. They're just not at the same space where they can be relied upon to make good decisions for themselves or others. So I don't know how you build trust with people who are chaos machines who are just like, I'm just going to react to whatever happens to me with no plan and then spiral out. I mean, in some ways, social media has made that more clear about who the chaos demons are, who are just like, look at me, I'm hungry for attention. I have no you know, solid sense of self. That was something as a very young person, I was like, Oh, chaos, chaos, chaos. I don't do chaos. I don't produce chaos. I'm not interested in chaos. Like I find it anathema. Chaos undermines confidence. Yeah. Well, also it's about external validation. Then that is what's the driver when you have approval seeking as the main source of your self-esteem. So actual confidence does require, you know, an ability to uh, understand that you're you don't need to please everyone yes um and that it, I mean that's intentionality as well like knowing that okay I'm this thing and not I don't have to do be this other person because someone else wants me to be and it's also okay to fail like it's okay to disappoint being comfortable with disappointment I also think made a big difference for me like I I think when I've been chaotic <laughs> you know, a big problem was dwelling on, you know, I would, I would almost be traumatized by all of the stupid things that I've done, which is a lot, but I would like replay situations in my head and, and think about how I would have done something differently. And all of that was about punishing myself for not being the person that other people thought I should be. So confidence is in some ways, a lot of work. It's about preparation. It's about understanding that you don't need to be something that you're not, but also it's improving with work, um, what you want to be. Yeah. So for me, it's like, I'm not measuring myself against other people. I'm just measuring myself against like a past version of myself. Yes. And like, I'm doing better than then. And I'm going to be doing better, like 
we're moving in the right direction. And that's been life-changing to me. I love that. I mean, obviously I'm not a pleaser, right? And I've never had those tendencies like as a sentient person, but I think for me, my confidence draws people who are not confident. And so they're like, what's that about? And that's really hard for me because I feel like they put me in the position to be the daddy to reject them, right? To like produce disappointment because they're not actualized and they have no ethics and they're not, they don't have a, an apparatus of themselves or their ego where they can manage their own failures. And I, I really cannot express how much I dislike being put in that position where people want me to judge them or produce judgment that's familiar to them, especially rejection trauma that exists in other relationships. There is nothing that I find more revolting as an interpersonal dynamic than that, because I'm like, the whole world is full of rejection. I don't want to produce that. Do not put me in a position to have to say no to you about stuff that you know that you are reproducing that's harmful to yourself. Like I, as an interpersonal dynamic, as an ethical dynamic, I'm happy to call that that stuff out, right? My whole career is based on like, what are racist and sexist patterns of communication that build structures of oppression. But as an interpersonal dynamic, I can't, I cannot express how much I dislike that sort of dynamic that emerges, especially among women, but especially among white women or, you know, high achieving academic women. I, it, I find it revolting. I just want folks to find internal sources of self-love and self-appreciation that are not related to external approval. And I know that that might be weird because I'm a high achieving person and I have like whatever gotten external awards, but that has never been the goal except to leverage it for more resources to do justice stuff. Right. You know, it's not like winning prizes in the Academy often comes with huge sums of money. Sometimes it does, but in my case, it hasn't. But I think for a lot of people, it's the external validation that is driving a lot of their behaviors. And I, I just do not have that. I I think perfectionism is like a big issue, especially Mm. with the white ladies. (laughs) And I take issue primarily with like the demands that the culture places on women. It's not just that women hold themselves to high standards. It's also externally enforced. And, you know, we, the whole emphasis for us doing this podcast was responding to lean in, which is one of those narratives that tells us that we just need to be confident, even though we're constantly getting signals from everyone around us that we're not good enough, you know, and we don't have enough messaging that the expectations themselves are actually flawed, not you. So I think that we set our expectations too high. Social media, I think reinforces that too. You know, like we see people put putting their best on the internet, hyper editing themselves. And like, we don't get to see the parts that are ugly or we don't get to see the work. We don't see get to see the growth. Um, There's like a very ugly part. And I think part of that is when we talk about confidence and the people who are allowed to talk about confidence, it's tough to like understand how to have confidence as someone who hasn't made it or who's like in the process of figuring 
themselves out or who is at the entry level in their workplace or who's combating imposter syndrome or who's dealing with external conflict because you know it's it's easy for someone who's made it like you've been given a TED talk of course you're confident (laughs) like why don't we hear from people who are like this is really hard I'm struggling to figure this out Um, but I put a lot of work into it and I'm proud of the work that I've done and that can be confident I just think we don't see enough of the in-between insecurity and like actually getting to the place where like you've made it and then you're like, of course I'm confident now. I think part of it is that people don't see how the sausage is made. So for every person who's made it, who has made it on their own in some ways, like who has not been gifted massive inherited wealth (laughs) and whiteness and status, Uh, but people who have made it on their own, particularly who've come from adverse circumstances, I think the biggest deal is knowing how the sausage is made, right? Like those people who, who make it on their own, who are self-made in that way are self-made through a bunch of violence, right? And trauma. So the thing that they have overcome is by recognize, they've recognized who is foisting their bullshit upon them and how they are producing their own bullshit to undermine their own progress towards some sort of self-actualization or whatever. But at the end of the day, the thing that gets you from, you know, I'm in progress with confidence and I am confident is a sense of agency. What can I control and what can I not control? And the thing that you can control is sabotage (laughs) for sure. Right. And self-perceptions like how, like you were saying, how often do I flagellate myself for a, you know, a mistake? Well, that's a thing you can control. Right. You can't control the external circumstances of our existence in terms of their materiality. But, you know, more often than not, especially in the academy, which is obviously just a Ponzi scheme of faux achievement, I just see people sabotaging left and right. Like, here's this huge opportunity. I'm going to fuck it up. You know, here is this great relationship. I'm going to sabotage it and destroy it by avoidance. You know, I made a small mistake and now I'm going to ignore it until it becomes a colossal festering wound, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that is the, the transitional point between I'm a work in progress and I'm on the other side of achievement to build confidence, whether that's mastering skills about the self or external skills or whatever is really about understanding, is it your shit or is it somebody else's shit, (laughs) you know, and being able to say that is not my, that is your problem. Right. And this is definitely my problem or this is our problem and we have to work on it together. So we have to get over X, Y and Z. But that's not a skill set that's like talked about or taught. And so instead, I think people just check out of relationships, especially as they get older because of their fear of disappointment or their self-loathing of self. And then they become these alienated, isolated individuals, especially in white culture. It's different in, in you know, communities of color. Right. Who have totally different relationship norms and senses of self in some ways. I like that you mentioned agency as a requirement because, you know, talking about becoming more confident does actually require that some of your needs are met. You know, I like thinking about confidence as self-actualization because it means that you actually have room to take risks, that your all of your energy isn't focused on survival Um, And it is really hard to be confident when you're like, I'm just barely like making stuff work. 
you know, I think it's really easy to blame yourself and get down when you're in those situations where like you're still focused on meeting your own needs, uh, your basic needs. And then it's really hard then to see all the narratives of confidence. You know, one thing I think that we don't see very much is like CEOs have all these coaches, like they have all kinds of therapy, like so much therapy so that they feel confident, you know, insecurity happens at every level. Right. And so increasingly, I think we are recognizing like the importance of vulnerability and we're seeing people talk about their fears more <laughs> therapies becoming more acceptable and, you know, mental health is becoming less of like a narrow rigid thing that we don't, or like something that we put in the closet or in the corner and like, don't talk about. So that I think is important because you can't just will yourself to have confidence. You do have to have support and also like be a space carved out where you can fit. And it's lunacy if you don't have some kind of external sign, right? Like it's like Don Quixote, you know, there is some sense in which you need to know that what you're doing is helpful and useful. And so you can't rely totally on external validation, but also is important as feedback or yeah. Feedback is important. I think that's good. You know, what, what I think makes us work as pals, but also as collaborators is, is the play side, which obviously we tackle in the first season of lean back because play is risky. I think for you and I play has been a really great vector for us to build our intellectual relationship and our social relationship in part because of its relationship to discipline. So I'm somebody who gets, who people try to discipline men have tried to discipline for my whole life. And I feel like my response to that, especially as I get older and I've racked up more achievement is to play harder and to produce that kind of destabilized space for growth. I think that has been an intentional decision that I've made because I think for people who have a really well-defined sense of agency and who are confident, it helps to work against the gaslighting and dominance behavior and disciplinary practices of the social sphere, especially as they are so white supremacist and sexist and heterosexist and ableist and Christian and all of that stuff. And so I think that play is one vector of confidence for me that helps to offset the dominance, you know, that I'm surrounded by, like every time I leave the house, you know, from external culture and it works to create a sort of valve for the pressure for the ego pressure that happens under capitalism, right? Because you're right. People need material support and they need cultural support and they need networks of support in order to try and carve out space to build ethical frameworks that are not part of the larger public political conversation about who are we as a people and what are we as a nation and what does it mean to be governed and these sorts of things. So without that kind of public conversation about ethics and politics, there's no other way to build it except for in these little micro cohorts, like your friend group or your work friends or whatever. And I think for a lot of people, they just sort of fold into imposter syndrome, right? Because they don't, they have not mastered skills or they don't feel like they've mastered skills or the gaslighting is so intense that it's hard to ground yourself in that kind of, you know, either micro aggression or off very often macro aggression. So it's very hard to get to the self-love side of the thing, you know? 
there, there is no confidence without some material comfort. It's not, I don't think it's possible. Yeah. I think what play does is that it takes the edge off failure. You know, it like lowers the stakes so that it gives you room to experiment and take risks and like gives you that cushion. It also disperses the violence and introduces pleasure as a node of connection, especially in the workplace, which is so missing. Oh yeah, it's totally missing. The workplace has become this space where failure is almost unacceptable. And I think it drives garbage outcomes and, you know, like leads people, especially women to feeling, um, we've touched on imposter syndrome a little bit, but I think women are starting to realize that they don't have imposter syndrome so much is as like the workplace is actively hostile, mm-hmm. like doesn't do any work around growth or mentorship or support or specialization or even just skills-based stuff about the work itself. I mean, you know, capitalism is sabotage. It is a sabotaging of individual agency and certainly a sabotage of collective agency. And I just wish, you know, women in the workplace, especially because this is the lean back podcast, I wish they would just be like, this is bullshit. Say label the thing as well. It's bullshit. It for sure is. It for sure is. Just call it what it is. I don't know. The threshold for rejection is so low that I think it produces the, you know, perfectionist, docile, um, insecure, imposter syndrome persona in higher ed or, or in the workplace, certainly in corporate workplaces, or it goes the entire way. And it's like the battle axe, super aggressive man, woman among the white women in particular. Yeah. I mean, I think the workplace does a lot of work to like prevent the networks from even forming so that it's hard to like sit down and actually unpack something that happened or like what the environment is actually like without like feeling like you're being a bad employee. I I was having a similar conversation the other day where I was like, this is actually bullshit. Um, And so I was like venting with a couple of my colleagues and they were like, oh, we shouldn't be saying this. And I'm like, no, we absolutely should. Like our needs aren't being met. (laughs) We should be saying that, you know, and it's really important actually that we're doing it so that we know, like we've recognized the thing um, and we're on the same page about it. We know that we're not alone and not crazy, you know, like other people have noticed this too. So that kind of solidarity is important because, you know, isolating is the point. That's a a manipulation tactic. Yeah. And I feel like capitalism produces hyper paranoia. And so for people who are facing systematic social oppression, the paranoia is also self-preservation, which makes it difficult to build relation and to build solidarity. So I am totally, I totally agree with that completely. And I also think that in the absence of a real labor movement, you know, in the country, but certainly in the right to work states like where we live, it's even harder to talk about solidarity because everybody's so paranoid about even shit that's public, like salaries, right? Like all of our salaries are public. Why are you, why will you not talk about money? Can we have an honest conversation about money or not? Right. In terms of the way that, you know, adjunct labor is used or staff are underpaid or working conditions in general or COVID and labor, whatever. There's so much paranoia. And I have seen it 
in my workplace, and it's gotten worse because of the pandemic, because people aren't seeing each other as frequently. And so the silence and the lack of just casual interpersonal connection is reproducing more paranoia than existed even previously. So I think that is a, a weird dynamic. And I think too, when you asked about, you know, things that build confidence, I think for a lot of people that come to me for like professional advice and stuff, I'm like, do you have different groups of contact, right? That are supporting you, that you're providing support for that are not in your workplace? Because if your entire social life is grounded in the workplace, that is a lean in situation. And so any threat to that part of your life, which is disproportionately towards the building of bullshit capital is gonna undermine your sense of self so much that there's no foundation, right? So those folks are permanently insecure. They're rushing to please or produce 24 seven and it makes them chaotic and they feel out of control and they, they you, you can't count on them to do solidarity or to trust them because they are constantly looking for the next moment to please somebody else, right? So there is no firm sense of self that can build political solidarity. And I think that that creates the conditions for fascism and authoritarianism in the workplace and undermines the possibility for labor movements because people are so insecure and don't have an ethic and they are so driven towards these fleeting moments that are really about overproduction of labor that they can't separate themselves and call the bullshit the bullshit. Yeah. I mean, the paranoia is understandable because of like just the amount of surveillance (laughs) and the lack of privacy that people have. There's no space for failure, you know, everything's being like constantly <laughs> monitored and graded and judged. And um, I think this happens with like the insecurity people have about their bodies too. We see with body positivity um, calls for women to be confident about their bodies, but the culture is just like constantly reproducing surveillance <laughs> and like opinions about bodies and to me what would really create more confidence is just like talking about bodies less at all like why is it even such an object of so much scrutiny like um people are like love yourself and then I'm like but every picture you post on Instagram is of skinny people so like (laughs) like they're like you're so beautiful and I'm like you only ever post pictures of you when you think you look thin you know (laughs) so it's like I don't believe you. Um, and also I I think it makes it really hard then to actually feel confident about your body, like whatever size you are, just because there's so much attention on it that it's hard to get away from. So like scrutiny, I think, and like surveillance to me make it really difficult to then like actually have like an honest (laughs) sense of yourself and an honest sense of your value because like you have to constantly like read yourself in relation to judgment. I also think that the body dysmorphia produces racial dysmorphia, right? So like the constant focus on bodies, but especially white bodies and white beauty then also produces a reactionary response of like, you know, I'm working really hard. I can't possibly be a racist. So I think that's a problem. And I will say I had a blow up with a colleague just a couple of weeks ago, a gay colleague, actually, who every time I see him socially, he talks about my body. 
And it is so weird. And it's apropos of nothing. And it's the same script every time. And I exploded. And I was like, it's so fucking weird that you talk about my body. I hate it. And it makes me hate you. It's so fucking inappropriate to discuss me as a third person, as a body. I can't even fucking fathom why you do it. It makes no sense to me. Explain yourself right now. And he, he, he looked at me like I slapped him which I sort of like did, but I'm like, I want to arrest your attention and explain yourself. Why does this come up so frequently? I cannot understand it for the life of me. Why you think it's okay. Why this is your script. Why you bring it up every time I see you. I can't insist. Tell me right now. And of course he had no words for it, but I imagine that it will come up at some point. I bring this up a, because it pissed me off, but B, because I also think it's speaks to the fact that um, people talk about bodies and they don't know why, except that it's totally displaced self stop talk. Right. So I'm like, it's not really about my body. It's about your feelings about your body. Can like you talk about that instead? That would be helpful perhaps to a therapist. I don't know, not to me, but you know, the, the, it's a displacement of self feeling that gets foisted onto other people. And I think it's bad praxis, you know, but at the end of the day, it's certainly unexamined and it's a consequence of the dysmorphia. Yeah. I feel like the whole dad bod thing was actually like produced by women being like, we're just reminding you that we don't care if you have a six pack or not, like throw us a, it was almost like, um, we're saying that about men. And then obviously like that never it became a double standard and never actually like became a thing about body positivity and like ended up working against itself. Um, but, you know, I do think there's this focus on women's bodies in a way that there isn't about men's. We recorded recently on space and talked a little bit about how much space that men take up and how women are supposed to make themselves small and so like there is a sense in which like actual your actual physicality in the world makes an impact on like how you feel about yourself and if you're like expected to conform to certain constraints about space then it makes it hard for you to like both take up space physically and take up space with your ideas and take risks I know, but there's also the other side of that for women of color, I think, especially and trans women that to produce confidence is to invite violence in a very particularly racialized way. So, you know, confidence is read as aggression. I think for women writ large, certainly that happens with me. That is not to say that I can't be aggressive, but on the whole, I'm being jokey and playful and not aggressive on the whole. But I think for women of color, they don't get the benefit of play and they, any kind of confidence is read as a direct threat to white power, which it is, you know, but it shouldn't be punished that way. Right. So for women of color, trans women in particular to produce confidence is a transgression of the highest order. And so, you know, I do think we have to be mindful of the fact that confidence is not just like a net positive performance of the self, especially in public, it is also a direct challenge to power. So I feel like as a white chick who does race work, it's really important for me to take up, you know, confident space as a way of creating space for others. But that's a hard tightrope to walk because it does invite more 
panopticon surveillance and more brutality, especially in the workplace, but also in social spaces and the before times in bars or in public. Yeah, but in some ways, I think it's it's super important for if you have any kind of agency to start taking up space, because I, I mean, like men do it all of the time, right? And so I think in some ways, like we have to push that interpretation, continue to take up space. So eventually it gets spread less as aggression. And as normative. And as normative, right. I think trans confidence has made it much easier for people to understand their identities, think more about their identities. And it's helped a ton of young people feel like they can transition and um, that is the right choice for them. And actually seeing that confidence has been a difference maker in so many lives. I I do want to talk about overconfidence because, you know, I think that I've seen so many men have confidence that is unwarranted, (laughs) unwarranted. Right. And so then it's really hard for me to see folks struggling with their, I just, I've just been in so many situations where I've seen unprepared men walk into a room and just like take up all of the conversational space, whether it's like a professor who never prepared for lectures, just walking in and like talking about whatever he felt like on any given day to like someone who didn't review prepared materials ahead of a meeting and just like deciding that they were going to talk the entire time, even though everyone else had prepared. (laughs) So one, it's like about taking up space. So less of that happens. And it's also about confidence does require work and it does require you to have a sense of self and know what you're doing and come to the table prepared, I think. I mean, I think that that's true. And I also think there's a relationship between overconfidence and jealousy. So the underprepared people produce overconfidence to compensate for their jealousy. And I think that that absolutely gets weaponized against talented people of color in ways that I think are super toxic. And I think the way to cut against that is to amplify the confidence of folks who are producing, I don't know, non-toxic labor, the collaboration, the collaborative space, who are doing the hard work of building the network, right? To call out the bullshit. I think it's important to amplify that and also to produce reciprocity. Because I think a lot of people who produce overconfidence or who can't get to confidence can't reciprocate. Right. So they don't understand the things that are being offered and they can't return them for for reasons that are structural or personal. Right. I mean, it doesn't really matter why they can't. But I think a sense of reciprocity is part of the ethical grounding of producing, you know, the kind of solidarity labor that we're talking about. The overconfident people can't do it and the underconfident people can't do it. And so that leaves the folks who can produce competence and confidence sort of holding the bag on both ends for the folks who are alienated out of healthy collaboration. I mean, in some ways, I think it's part fear. It's the fear of failure, right? That prevents people from being uh, able to reciprocate um, in relationships, whether they're personal or professional. And uh, that's not surprising because capitalism thrives on scarcity and the fear of scarcity and fear itself, right? To build this sort of paranoia about what comes next. 
I just think in some ways it's a failure of imagination for the self. And so sometimes people are striving towards confidence and mastery and they're barking up the wrong tree and it's about flexibility and openness and, um, and about being able to understand that you cannot control all the variables that are influencing the decisions that are possible at any given moment. Right. I think that's really hard for white people, Uh, but I think people who are in precarious positions and I think certainly, you know, folks from racial categories that are massively surveilled and policed and repressed have a better sensibility that even though the narrative of American exceptionalism suggests that you can be anything you want, actually, many of those roads are foreclosed because of structural violence. And so I think the a priori thing is to understand that perfectionism or the fake it till you make it can't necessarily overcome structural violence without solidarity. I think that we need more models, like more ways of expression that are acceptable and more paths to the top because there are like certain types of personalities that just get read as being successful. So if we have more models of success, then I mean, that's what solidarity looks like, I think, is like, let's celebrate different types of skill sets and different types of personalities and what they all bring to the table instead of like, let's promote this type of personality because they're going to be our managers. And then everyone else who doesn't have that personality is just not capable. (laughs) But actually like the beauty of strong organizations or strong communities is that everyone has different strengths to bring to the table. And if we like gave more credence to different types of skill sets and different types of personalities and that the impact that they have as individual contributors, I mean, I think that solves a huge confidence gap because, you know, people are feeling like they're not good enough or they're feeling marginalized. And that's led to a whole, the whole Trump problem, right? Is that a whole class of people feel like they've been overlooked and that part of the country looks down on them. And I don't think that's necessary if we had better models of what like leadership is and had better models of appreciation for diversity. I mean, I do think that that is the most generous read of DEI initiatives is a suggestion that, you know, there are qualities that are not reflected in the way that capitalism has arranged white labor to dominate in this country that are valuable and skill sets like empathy and truth telling and solidarity and collaboration and a whole host of things that build worker power and that build class solidarity. So I think you're right about that, that I think there there have to be alternative models and confidence comes from the fact that there are different ways of being with other people that are not toxic, but are, are still valuable. I do think that the toxicness of sort of the snowflake discourse and white supremacy and fascist authoritarian impulses right now is about squashing the things that we're saying like fundamentally as a response to white women's achievements as a result of Title IX and um, the women's movement, second wave feminism in particular, and also then the success of people of color, but especially black people in the workplace since the eighties. And so the conservative impulse to crush that is also part of the hyper-violence 
of the public sphere right now and and really is a source of undermining confidence, which is totally understandable. But there's just no way out of that without, you know, solidarity. And that does mean, I think, accounting for other modes of being that are not normatively white or male or or coded as such given the his organizational history of the country. So I don't know. I think we can do better in creating the possibility for people to have centered, ethical, connected relationships. And I don't see that happening in the COVID moment. 